0: There is a resistance to Jesus that resides in many of our hearts that doesn't stem from blatant sin or the devil's attacks nor the world's temptations. There is a resistance that stems from, I think, justice and honesty, which says, it's not right that I receive grace. Because I know who I am. I know what I've done. Jesus wouldn't take me. Or even if he would, he shouldn't take me. Some of you here may think, you have no idea what I've done. In the privacy of my own life or the secrecy of my own heart, I've been abusive, adulterous, rebellious, hateful, violent, selfish, or so on. And thus, we feel that we should not receive love or grace from Jesus. We feel it isn't right. The corrective to this self depreciating mindset is the cross of Christ. It tells us both are true at the same time, that we are utterly undeserving, and yet he loves us anyway, and that that's actually the point of grace altogether. It's kindness shown to the undeserving. You know the old song chorus I remember singing it as a kid? I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. Put a flabbergasted question mark at the end of that. Jesus loves even me? Because of our depravity, we have these niggling doubts that that could ever be true. Let's have our doubts shattered together today, shall we? Would you open a Bible up with me to Luke chapter 23? Luke 23. Today is week two in our crossword series, looking at the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and today's words convey one of the most astounding acts of grace I believe ever seen. And if grace was available then, in that moment, then it's certainly available to us today. If you were with us last week, we covered a bit of how gruesome and horrific the cross was. How it was physically torturous to the point that breathing and speaking were extremely difficult. Emotionally humiliating, degrading, spiritually obscene. For the Jewish people, Crucifixion was also a brutal reminder of their subjugation under Rome. Because public punishments like this were one way that Rome instilled fear in people and tried to control them. Right? Whenever the Jews witnessed the crucifixion, it vividly told them, you're not a kingdom or a nation. Your king is Caesar. We hold the power. All the power. So, dissent... Or defy Rome at your peril. Look what happens to those who do. However, Jesus died during the time of Passover. Which was the season of celebrating and remembering God's redemption of Israel. The very first Passover, recall, marked the end of slavery and tyranny and abuse. It was when God freed them from Egypt and set them off for the Promised Land. And now that they were back under another empire's thumb... Passover would have reminded them of that freedom that God gave them, the the kingdom they once had, and that they prayed would eventually return. It would be a bit like if, if Canada were conquered by another nation one day, how we would feel as Canadians every time July 1st rolled around. Patriotic, sad, pining for what we lost, hopeful for change. Thus, Passover really became an occasion for the Jews to to long for deliverance again, to long for God's Messiah to come. And the thing was, there were rumors floating around about Jesus of Nazareth. People speculated that he might be the long-awaited Messiah. So, when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem that year, perhaps they thought, Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is when God will restore the kingdom to Israel. And you can sense some of that hope when they welcome Jesus into the city like a king, shouting, Hosanna! But within the week, that opti- optimism just d- disappeared. It evaporated. Things did not go the way they hoped. Jesus didn't establish a king's throne He was sentenced to a criminal's execution. The Roman governor did send Jesus off to die with a sign to place on the cross, labeling him as the so-called king of the Jews. The message was clear. You want a king other than Caesar? Here he is. You might be able to relate a little bit to how The people must have felt in that day because we all have hopes and dreams that we yearn for, even if they're much smaller than that. We want relief. We want restored health. We want more freedom. We want change. We want a better quality of living. We want better government. We want better days. And we end up often sorely disappointed when these hopes are crushed. But even as Jesus hung dying on a cross, with so many people's hopes dying with him, he spoke some words that were overflowing with hope. A hope that we all desperately need. And these words of hope were spoken to one of the unlikeliest of people, a guilty, dying criminal. Follow along with me. We'll start in verse 32 again today. So we're in Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke is emphasizing this fact, and this was no coincidence, because 700 years prior, it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Remember, we just read that in Isaiah 53. So he would be associated with sinners, and the lowest sinners at that. It's likely that these criminals weren't just thieves, or they were called thieves, but they were often, they must have been more than just shoplifters. These were probably bandits, armed robbers, violent offenders, people who would just as soon kill you as take your stuff. So this was inconceivable, and yet it happened. The Holy One was grouped with the unholy. The lawgiver suffered alongside lawbreakers. The Savior was numbered with the scum of society. And a perfectly innocent man was dying between two very guilty men. This goes to show just how low Jesus had descended to unthinkable depths of shame. This circumstance also testifies to the unique truth of Christianity, because you can't make this stuff up. Like, if you were inventing a religion, would you ever, in a million years, let your hero, let alone your God, be found here, in the most shameful spot imaginable? No, you would never highlight this event, unless it were true, unless it actually happened. The tragic irony of this scene runs deeper yet. Because Jesus was the only innocent sufferer there at Calvary. And yet he, not either criminal, is the one singled out for mockery and scorn. Look at verse 34. It says, And Jesus said, We read this last week, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. See, people were hoping for a king, but their hopes had turned to jeers. And yet the the sign above Jesus' head, remarkably, told the truth. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. We then see one of the criminals join in the mocking. It says one of the criminals who were were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Essentially he lashed out. You've claimed to be the Messiah. Prove it. Get yourself out of this jam. Save yourself. And us too while you're at it. Now, interestingly, Matthew's account of this says that both criminals taunted him. So at the very least, at the start, they both hurled insults and curses at Jesus. But at some point in these hours on the crosses, one of them had a total change of heart. Look at what it says in verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong just to this was listen man, we're all in the same boat now, and you and I you and I we've already been tried, we've been we've condemned, we did the crimes, we deserve this, but this guy doesn't. hey no one has seen him do anything wrong ever and think, you're about to die, which means there's another courtroom awaiting you. you're going to stand before. God the judge, very soon. And if there was ever a time to fear God, it's now. Like, why add to your sins by turning on this man? Don't go out this way. I think we can already sense this man's really newfound faith in his, this man has done nothing wrong but we see it on full display when he turns to address Jesus himself in verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'll put on your imagination caps for a minute. Try to picture being this thief. Hey, We already, we already talked about how Crucifixion, what it would have meant for Jesus, it would have meant a lot of the same things for Him. Picture the the pain and the agony you're feeling and the hopelessness. This is how you die. This is the end. You're about to meet your maker too. Didn't realize yet he was already meeting his maker. But As he's sitting there, he's thinking, "Like your lifestyle, it hasn't been upright or noble, to say the least. If there's an afterlife for you, it's not going to be a good one. But as you struggle to breathe, you get intrigued by the, the drama unfolding beside you. The man dying on the next crossover is well known, famous, even. Some claimed he was the Messiah. But now people around are mercilessly making fun of him. And you can see why. <laughs> this guy, a Savior, a King, Messiah, that, that's laughable. And so you join in soon enough you start to wonder, why isn't this guy lashing back at the people around him? And, huh? He asks God to forgive his murderers? What kind of man does that? Wait, what if we have this all wrong? What if He actually is the Messiah, and this is how we're treating him. What What if dying was part of his plan? So you look over at the other guy, like, man, you should stop. Like, this isn't right. Quiet down over there. And then you look over at Jesus, and he turns and looks at you right in the eye. You see sorrow and pain in his eyes. It seems he looks right into you. He's not angry at you. He sees you, knows you, and loves you. Maybe your eyes drift up to the sign above him. It says, King of the Jews, and it clicks. This man is your true king. You might not understand where, when, or how, but you know he's going to have a kingdom. And so you groan out the words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's here we finally hear Jesus speak again. Words nothing short of astounding. Verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus Jesus didn't turn down his request. It was an audacious request. Jesus didn't turn him down. Jesus didn't turn away from him, just ignoring him. Could have. He didn't say, you're too late. You should have asked sooner. Or you deserve this. Or even you should have lived your life differently, then maybe I consider your request. He welcomed him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in. Paradise. He basically answered yes and then some. Now, transposing this out as a a principle for all of us, Christ's words show us that Jesus welcomes sinners with simple faith. He pardons them, he saves them. Jesus welcomes sinners who have simple faith. We already saw this, this simple faith expressed by the thief in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But what did he mean by the request to remember me? Because he's clearly not just asking Jesus to recall him fondly. Like, after Jesus dies, he thinks, that was a nice guy. No, he's not saying, don't forget about me or spare a thought for me. It's more like, Keep me in mind so some good comes to me. When the Bible talks about God remembering his people, it's not like he ever forgets, right? No, he doesn't just, when he remembers us, he doesn't just think about us. He acts for us. He saves us. He blesses us. That's remembering. Think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament when he helped the cupbearer get out of prison, he asks, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. This thief's remember me is similar and it's really a request for mercy in the royal court when Jesus is king. Which means he not only believed there would be some kind of life after death, he believed Jesus would be king and have authority to influence his fate. Think. This man was being crucified. He's already disgraced, wouldn't be buried in honor. Soon enough, no one on earth would remember him. He'd be forgotten. But Only you will remember me, Jesus. I know it'll be okay. How in the world did he reach this conclusion? We don't know enough to answer that. What could explain this guy taking a dying, crucified man as his God on the spot? Sounds like a total miracle of God's grace. God opened his blind eyes to reality. And truly, God gets all the glory for salvation. The few words the criminals said were enough. They reflected his heart's faith. But just think about what was involved in his simple faith. Okay, He, he saw his need... He recognized his sin. We saw that. He acknowledged who Jesus was. And he turned to Jesus for help. Making a request. uh, Expressing his trust. And that's it. Now think about what wasn't involved in his simple faith. Growing up in a believing family. Going to worship regularly. Living a good life. He never walked down an aisle, got catechized, discipled. He never even got baptized. And he would never serve in the church, be in a small group, study scripture. It's a good reminder of what we actually need in order to be saved. We need faith alone in Christ alone. Not Our good behavior or good deeds or good character, which are all good, yes, true faith will inevitably lead to those things in time. But in order to be welcomed by Christ, this is all we must do. We need to see our need, acknowledge our sin, and flee to our Savior. Have you done that before? If not, there is no better time to do this than today. Because one day, maybe today, you too will die and come face to face with your maker. Are you ready for that? You can pray even right now, asking Jesus to remember you on that day. And then, let's all look again at Jesus' words of welcome in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what that word truly is in the original Hebrew? Amen. Amen. Let it be so or it will be so in this case. It's a word of assurance. Truly, verily, I assure you, count on it. Take it to the bank. You I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And he didn't give the man a maybe I'll remember you <laughs> or a we'll see or I don't know. He gave him confidence. Essentially saying, Your faith has saved you. If we have come to Christ in faith, yes. We should be on our guard, be vigilant, and yes, we're called to examine ourselves, to be sure we're in the faith, but God never intends for us to just continually waffle in our assurance of our faith. He wants you to have confidence that your faith is enough because Christ is enough. Like if you've come to him, the depth of your faith is not the issue the strength of your Savior is. Consider, Jesus was never weaker than when he hung dying on the cross. And yet, even there, he had the power to save a soul from hell and fit him for heaven. So yes, you can doubt your own power to save yourself. You should. But never doubt Jesus' power to save. If a near-dead Savior can save, how much more can a resurrected living Savior? When you doubt, ask yourself, who are you actually trusting to save you? Now, can you even imagine how the thief felt when he heard these words? I think his eyes welled up with tears? Think he smiled even in his agony? Think he approached death with much more peace than he had before? Truly I say to you he didn't need to be afraid anymore. Today his suffering would soon be over Forever you will be with me in paradise. That'd be hard to even wrap his head around. I like what Marie Harris says here. It says, what is remarkable about Jesus' response is that while the criminal requested simply to be remembered, Jesus promised an intimate personal association with me. While he asked for kindness at some unknown future time, Jesus gave an assurance about this very day. While his petition related to some vague kingdom, Jesus guaranteed a place in the well-known paradise. Jesus' promise is even better than the request. But does this encounter not baffle you at all? If you put yourself in Jesus' shoes, why bother with this thief? Of all the people Jesus could have used his precious few breaths, his precious few last words on, why him? He wasn't talking to his grieving family or friends, but to a hardened common criminal who isn't even given the dignity of being named in Scripture. But Jesus gives him his full attention. And Scripture records his story. Why? I think this story is preserved to show us, yet again, God's incomprehensible love for sinners. And so, to give hope to anyone who encounters Jesus, no matter what their story is, no matter what sin they commit or suffering they go through in life. Can you see that here? And Jesus welcomes sinners with simple faith no matter their backstory. Jesus welcomes sinners with simple faith no matter their backstory. We're told next to nothing about this guy's story, his, his past, only that he was a criminal or a thief. In verse 41, he had freely admitted to what he deserved. He deserved to die. This is a worthy death. I need to die. no matter what crime he was guilty of, Jesus welcomed him. And that may actually bother you. How could Jesus pardon a total crook just like that? I'll tell you how. It's a little word called grace. And if that sounds scandalous, that's because it is. But we had better be thankful it is. Because truly, no one deserves mercy or pardon or love or blessing. No one. You may think, well, I'm no thief or criminal. And yet you are. So am I even if it was only stealing a cookie as a kid, we've all stolen. Much worse than that, we've all robbed God of glory that he rightfully deserves every day. And for that cosmic treachery, we all deserve to die, my friends. And yet, no matter what you are guilty of, no matter what I'm guilty of, Jesus will Welcome us if we come to him. That's a scandal of grace. Jesus welcomes us. Even though this man had, like he had temporarily joined in the cursing of Christ on the cross. God changed his heart. He granted him a repentance that leads to life. And he'll do the same for you. Even though you too once acted as God's enemy even if we reject him all the way until our literal deathbed, it's not too late. Like Jesus' offer of grace only expires when you expire. Now, I would urge you as strongly as possible to not wait until then to turn to Christ. Because postponing salvation is so foolish. Like you might not even have a deathbed it may come suddenly. But even if you do, your heart may be far too hardened by then to change. That said, this story tells us that there is hope for anyone, even to their very date of death. Like if you're still breathing, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you to repent of that sin that has dogged you for years. It's not too late to make a change for the better by God's grace. It's not too late to, to receive mercy and full assurance of your faith in Christ. It's not too late to be saved in the first place. And it's not too late to share your faith with someone who's nearing their end. Someone here in our church this last year saw their mom except Christ on her deathbed. It was glorious. Not the death, of course, but the salvation that was brought even in those moments. J.C. Ryle put it this way, One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. A little while ago, I saw a powerful video clip from a sermon by Alistair Begg. He was preaching about the thief on the cross and how we have to keep bringing ourselves back to the basics of the gospel and simple faith over and over again every day. You know the old evangelistic question, if you were to die tonight and you were asked, why should you be granted entry into heaven, what would you say? And Begg says that if we were to answer in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I believed. Because I am this. Because I am continuing in the faith. Allow me to quote him now at length. You'll just have to imagine his great Scottish accent here. says, loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he... Think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing that guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know. What are you doing here? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. (laughs) They go get their supervisor, Angel. So just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? (laughs) Never heard of it in my life. What about the doctrine of scripture? And he's just staring. Eventually, in frustration, the angel says, On what basis are you here? And he said, The man on the middle cross said I can come. The man on the middle cross said I can come. The goes on. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends on me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. It is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So forsake your pride that says you don't need grace. And forsake your despair. Stop thinking that it's not right for you to receive grace. Like reason might say that, sure, but Jesus' blood tells a different story. A story of extravagant grace for the undeserving. The man on the middle cross said, you can come. No matter what your backstory, Jesus is willing to welcome you if you have simple faith in him. Which means we must hold these two truths in tension. We are all criminals in the big picture. And Jesus welcomes us anyway. That's grace. But he welcomes us where? Well, that's the last part of his promise. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, here's the point. Jesus welcomes sinners with simple faith, no matter their backstory, to join him in his paradise kingdom. As soon as we die, we forgiven sinners will join him in his paradise kingdom. Truly, amen. The words, with me, are the greatest part of Jesus' promise here. He didn't just say, today, you'll be in paradise. He said, you'll be there with me. And this is one of only three times in scripture that the afterlife for believers is called paradise. Paradise. But it's much more often than that repeated that heaven is to be with the Lord. Over and over. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that on Christ's return, we will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Or maybe most significantly, in John 14, right after Jesus gives a pretty vague description of heaven, where he says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to... Where? Your own private mansion? No. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Paradise isn't the prize, He's the prize. And paradise is just the byproduct of being with the Lord. As A.W. Pink explains, that which makes heaven superlatively attractive to the heart of a saint is not that heaven is a place where we shall be delivered from all sorrow and suffering, nor is it that heaven is the place where we shall again meet, meet again those we loved in the Lord, nor is it that heaven is the place of golden streets and pearly gates and jasper walls. No, blessed as these things are, heaven without Christ would not be heaven. So, you will be with me, is really all the dying thief would have needed. That would have been enough. And yet, in his grace, Jesus adds to that unbelievable promise by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Now just stop and think. Where were Jesus and the criminal at this moment? Basically the most miserable place a human could imagine being in. Like the polar opposite of paradise. They were in hell on earth. From there, I'd be happy if Jesus promised me to sue me back to a normal existence. Right, You'll get to go to work, eat some meals, hang out a bit, and go to bed. Not paradise, but not a bad life at all. I'll take it, Jesus. (laughs) Sign me up. Take me there. But no. Jesus promised above and beyond this man's wildest dreams an actual bona fide paradise. The paradise, by the way, of which all our dreams of paradise are merely pale shadows. Ever since we got kicked out of Eden, we have been trying to reclaim And recreate paradise. We saw an example of this in Ecclesiastes with Solomon trying to do so, right? But he was driven to frustration and despair. It wasn't possible in a fallen world. Or today, how do resorts or cruise ships or vacation destinations advertise themselves? As slices of paradise. What do we suppose this looks like? Gorgeous weather, beautiful people, delicious food, refreshing drinks, exciting adventures, awe-inspiring sights, endless fun, reinvigorating rest. And many of these things really are tiny tastes of paradise. But we can never get it perfect, can we? or even close to it. Go to these places, and there's still plenty of things that can stress you out. There's still stormy days, sunburns, strife with loved ones, bad food, exotic illnesses, adventures that turn into disasters, criminal activity, boredom or insomnia. There's still plenty of trouble in paradise. But this will not be so in the paradise Jesus promises. It will be perfection regained. And that's because there will no longer be any sin or curse to muck things up. The book of Revelation calls it the paradise of God in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But do you know what it says immediately before those words? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the promise of paradise. That's what creates paradise. God will dwell once and for all with us. Like, the weather, the people, the food, the drinks, the sights, the fun, the rest, like, all of which Scripture refers to, I believe, as being part of heaven, by the way. But all those things are all secondary to joining the risen Christ in glory. In this paradise, God's kingdom will be fully realized and Jesus will reign as king. And Listen up, folks. The promise to the thief on the cross is a promise to us as well. Jesus said elsewhere, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So if you know Christ by his grace and you follow him by his grace, eternal life awaits you. Paradise awaits you. And it's where you'll go as soon as you die. When a Christian dies, their soul immediately goes to be with Jesus. There's no such thing as purgatory here or soul sleep. Jesus' words tell us that in that interval between our death and our resurrection, we will already be in paradise. Meanwhile, our physical bodies die and decompose. But one day... We'll be resurrected too, and our souls will be rejoined to a body, a glorified body like Christ's body, and it's in this state of blessedness that we will live out all of eternity. Today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you believe Jesus on this? Do you trust him? If so, brother or sister, you need not fear death. Whether for yourself or for your loved ones who know Christ. It's just the airport you have to pass through on your way to your final destination. And your final destination with him will make everything more than worth it. Oh how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Indeed, how sweet, and it will be unimaginably sweeter still when we're welcomed by him into paradise. Let's pray. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus today. Fix our eyes on heaven today. Lord, may the way that we go from here, may the way we live our lives reflect what we're really living for. Help our hearts to trust him. Help us not fear. We praise you for promises like this that we don't deserve. And yet they're in your word for us to hear and to change our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.